Hey there, this is Meg. I'm your host, and you are listening to Mental Status, a podcast about burnout for people in the mental health profession. Quick disclaimer, because you know that stuff is important these days. Uh, Mental Status is a podcast about burnout in the mental health field. It's for entertainment and educational purposes only. This is not therapy, and this is not clinical supervision. There are no CEUs associated with this podcast. Enjoy it and share it as you will. And if you're in a space where you're needing deeper support, please seek out therapy or supervision for yourself from somebody who is qualified to provide those services for you. Okay, here we go. Okay, Uh, welcome everybody to Mental Status. My name is Meg, I am your host, and this is a podcast about burnout for mental health professionals. And I'm joined by a super special guest today. I'm very excited about this episode and I would like to let them introduce themselves. So special guest, who are you, where are you, and how are you doing today? I feel so special now. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Meg, thanks for having me on. I know you and I have um, I've had to cancel on you like 15 times already. I feel <laughs> real bad about that. Um, my name is Patrick Casal. I'm in Asheville, North Carolina, and I'm doing pretty good. I'm not a morning person. So this is my first thing of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a group practice owner here and mental health and addiction therapist as well. Nice. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. I know we were talking before we started the recording that neither one of us is particularly a morning person. So appreciate it on both sides. Um, Yeah. So I guess we can just get right into it. Um, Tell us a little bit about your burnout story. Yeah. Such a good topic, you know, especially all things considered like in our profession right now, after the last couple of years. Um, So I worked in community mental health from about 2015 when I got my master's degree until 2018 ish. I don't know anymore. Time feels like I've lost track of everything over the last couple of years. Um, but I, I was a part of this program that I was really, really into. And I, and I totally could get behind the mission where we had created something really new in North Carolina and potentially even in the country where we created a 24-7 walk-in crisis center for mental health, substance use, and um, any sort of IDD, developmental disability crisis that was happening. So you could just walk in right off the street you didn't have to have insurance. It could be any hour of the day. And you could be triaged by a peer support specialist, a nurse, a clinician, and a psychiatrist. And our goal was to reduce hospital recidivism and also reduce the capacity that the EU, EU, geez Louise, it is early. <laughs> the <laughs> ER, the ER mm-hmm. um, had to deal with because they're just not set up as most of them aren't throughout the country. And at first I started as a clinician working three days a week, three 12 hour shifts. It was my first job out of grad school. And I was really excited, like three 12 hour shifts. Okay. I'm gonna work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, 10 to 10. This is going to be great. Um, making significant, like way better money than I ever have in my life. Mm-hmm. And you know, it was, it was great at first because our team environment was really behind the mission. And I think that makes a difference even, you know, in something that is unbelievably chaotic and stressful and, and new and like, um, it, it just got very busy very quickly. And I've always been in middle management and I got promoted fairly quickly to the program manager because our first one <laughs> got fired after six months for being terrible. Yeah. And, um, so I'm left kind of like, okay, 
I don't know what we're doing. We don't know what we're doing. We don't have enough resources. Like whoever designed the layout of this just <laughs> very clearly had no knowledge of mental health because like we have a small observation unit that only fits eight people, our capacity, you know, we're seeing hundreds of people a month and it's just got so out of hand so quickly. We had no, <laughs> we had no plan for meals. So people that were there for 24 hours, I had to go out to like grocery stores and just buy like cases and cases of microwavable food because that's mm. all we could do because we had no idea what we were doing. And people mm. in the store were probably looking at me like, what the fuck is this person <laughs> doing? And all of the time it, he's here getting so much. Right. Like, what is he doing with all these like banquet <laughs> meals? Like, who is he feeding? Oh, and it was just felt so bad, you know, to be like, oh, what do you guys want for dinner tonight? Like chicken nuggets or like, did you want this really crappy pasta dish? Um but nevertheless, like we just made do with what we had. And it was really hard because my 40 hour work week turned into about a 70 hour work week. Mm -hmm. And I was supposed to still be accruing hours for my master's degree and my license. And that went out the window just because, you know, in administrative work, it's hard to do both. And mm -hmm. even though I had been promised the ability to, to focus on that, um, and ultimately, you know, because we had nursing staff and it was overnight, I'm getting calls at like three in the morning, four in the morning, five in the morning, like, Hey, so-and-so has to go home. They're sick. Or like a nurse called out, what are we going to do? And I'm like, I'm not a nurse. Like I, I don't know what we're going to do. Yeah. And it just, you know, it takes a toll. Right. And you feel it physically, you feel it emotionally. You start to even question like, why did I get into this profession? And that was only like a year into having my master's degree. And I remember going on vacation in 2016 with my wife to Mexico and I was so stressed out, like answering emails and phone calls in the airport and, you know, my staff and my supervisor, like bombarding me nonstop that I got really, really sick and ended up in the hospital while we were on vacation. Mm -hmm. And I was like, kind of just laying there almost half, honestly, expecting to die. <laughs> and I just realized like, yeah, this can't, continue like something's got to give and there's no chance I can survive in this field if I'm going to be working over 60 hours a week and just unable to turn it off or step away or like even have permission to take a break mm -hmm. yeah I know that was long-winded sorry for that no no I think like it's I think it's good for people to be able to hear that type of stuff um to hear these types of stories I mean, mostly to normalize it, right? Because I'm sure there are people who are listening who are like, oh, shit, yeah, that's me right now. And I thought I was the only one. Um, part of what I'm curious about, though, is when, when you landed in the hospital, was it clear to you then? And it sounded like it was, but was it really clear that this was work-related illness? I think at first there's this denial process, you know, of like, no, it can't be that. I'm young. I'm... Mm -hmm. I had the capacity to do all the things. And then the more I just had to be kind of checking in with myself, I'm like, oh man, I've noticed such a stress release, even being in the hospital and not having to be available for emails and phone calls and, yeah. and everything else coming up where just the, the sheer like mention of, or seeing an email on my phone or my phone ring or whatever the case is like creating this visceral reaction mm -hmm. of, this almost trauma response. And, you know, it was, it was that moment where I decided like something has to give, something has to shift or 
-hmm. you know, this is going to be the trajectory of my career and this just is not enjoyable. And, um, a lot of shamefulness comes up around that, you know, especially as a newer clinician to the field, you're like, I should be able to endure, or I should be able to take all of this on. It's kind of ingrained and like instilled in us, right? Like we say it over and over in grad school and community mental health, like you're here for the client and you're giving yourself away. And like, that's a part of this profession. And it's just such a narrative that is so toxic and it's, it's just so limiting too, in, in terms of what we can offer the, uh, the, the world in general with our skill set. And yeah, I have no regrets about leaving that place. I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you mentioning that, like the trauma response from seeing an email pop up or something come in on the phone, it automatically made me think of my first job after grad school where I was on call, not even all of the time. It was one week out of a month where I was on call. And to this day, this was a couple of years ago, but to this day, the same ringtone, I can't hear that without the, uh, no, it was this very specific one on the iPhone. I'm I'm not going to say it, but yeah, that (laughs) reaction of just like, no, I cannot handle this right now. It still comes up. Um, And yeah, just this like, this idea, because we chose this profession, we should have no room to expect better for ourselves. Um, I've come to be, I used to be very angry with that idea. Now I can understand where it comes from and I just try to talk through it, but it's very pervasive in our field still. It really is. And I think that newer clinicians are kind of told this throughout their journeys of this is how this career goes. You know, Mm -hmm. you get your master's, you go into community mental health, you burn yourself out. And then finally, you can take that next step of becoming a private practice clinician because only, only then are you allowed to do those things. You have mm-hmm. had to get like to this plateau of like, I can't take this anymore. Mm-hmm. And then you finally have arrived. So, you know, <clears throat> thankfully, as my new role as like a private practice coach and consultant, I'm hopefully, you know, hoping that I'm helping other new clinicians just realize that the path doesn't have to look that way. Mm -hmm. And as long as you have good supervision and mentorship, you know, the field can look however you want it to look. And I talk about this a lot in my podcast and just in general, but when I left that, that job, I stayed with the company and I took a job, another startup. It was still geared towards reducing hospital usage and, and utilization in the ER you know, it's a startup. I'm all excited about it. We have a good team once again, but this was supposed to be way less stress because it's not crisis level. It's just case management. We're like doing all these creative things to keep people from using the ER services. And I remember eventually where I was just like, all right, I'm done with this agency job. I had a tipping point um, where they... still laugh about this to this day because you know all the community mental health jobs are like oh for the holiday bonus this year we got everyone this really shitty lunch that everyone's going to share and we just want to show our appreciation through these bagels and man we're so happy with the job you're doing and i remember they were finally like hey we're doing bonuses this year and they were notorious for just being like we don't ever do raises like we're proud of that and they said company-wide bonus based on productivity you know good old Mm. productivity and community mental health. And I didn't get a bonus on my paycheck. And I was like, did I miss something? Did I do something wrong? Like, I'm curious why I didn't get one. And they said, Oh, well, you started a new, a new job with a new grant and it's a startup. So we don't have the money for your department for bonuses. And I was like, huh, 
that's strange because all of my staff are in like our break room, like celebrating the fact that they just got thousands of dollars in bonuses. So I'm curious how come I did not. Yeah. Well, backpedal, 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 like walk it back and say like, well, at the end of the day, you know, you're a supervisor and you make a little bit more money than them. And we wanted to show the staff their appreciation. I'm like, wait, you just told me there were no bonuses for our department. Like, what are you talking about? Like, well, we see on your, um, your review that you got a three out of five and we know we start all of our, you know, our program supervisors at three out of five so they can grow. But we determine bonuses based on your review. And I'm like, again, this makes no fucking sense. So like make it make sense to me so yeah. that I do not leave this job today. And of course they could not. And all they could offer was like, well, you can leave early on Fridays from now on. And I was that. like, <laughs> I just went to supervision that day and like I was getting external supervision because Mm -hmm. internal supervision was like 40 clinicians sitting in a room with a burnt out supervisor who mm -hmm. definitely wasn't talking about anything clinical. And I was mm -hmm. like, all right, <clears throat> I'm putting my notice in today. Like, I am so sick of this. This is my breaking point. And of course, I put in a 90 day notice because I was like, I felt so responsible for my staff and the program and everyone's going to suffer if I leave, you know, they're going to need me and blah, 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 yeah. blah. And they replaced me in one day. They hired someone else and I was just basically like dead man walking for 90 days, just sitting in my office like, all right, I, I need to get the hell out of here. Like this oh needs to gosh. happen sooner than that. But, you know, it's so it's so interesting how we feel so indebted and it's almost like an emotionally abusive relationship in a lot of ways. Yes. And it's like safety, security. I know what I'm going to get. I owe this to them. And then ultimately you realize very quickly your loyalty is misplaced and it's very one sided. And once mm -hmm. you're done, you're done. And I still remember the last lunch I had as a um, exit interview with my program manager, who I thought was my friend at the time. And she just said to me, like, you're going out on your own and nobody makes it on their own. So you'll be back in 30 days, but don't expect to have your position back. And I was just like, huh, okay, that's going to be fuel for the fire for sure. Oh my God. And uh, <laughs> it, was a, it was a fun transitionary period for sure. It sounds fantastic. Sounds like you had a really good time with that. Um, <laughs> it's like, I, I wish that these types of stories were rare and they're not because as you were talking, I can only speak from my experience, but like, even in leaving the last group practice that I worked at, I felt overwhelmingly responsible for the clients, responsible for the owner of the practice, which tells you something about that dynamic. Like I felt responsible for not hurting their feelings in that process. And as I was having the conversation, like, you know, I'm just, it's really, it's not working. And I, it's been so great to be here, blah, blah, blah. Immediately, immediately after I had said that they were like, oh, well, do you know anybody who could come in and take your spot? Like, I do, but I'm not giving them your information. I wouldn't do that to them. And it, I mean, you're right. It can be in a lot of these cases, like an abusive relationship or, I mean, I've described it to other people, like really fucked up family dynamic, which you don't want your workplace to be a family. That's not what work is for. Um, and there's all these like expectations that you will show up and be there no matter what. And that we don't talk about the bad shit and if you speak up, then you're the black sheep of the family, essentially. And when, when you're gone, you're gone. It sounds like your experience is oh, it's fucked up. Yeah. And our, our profession is full of like not practicing what we preach, right? In mm -hmm. terms of like self-care, especially. And 
it's almost like a running joke in situations like that where it's like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, you do have paid time off, but if you take it, we're going to make you feel really guilty yeah. and we're still going to bombard you with emails and calls. And if you don't respond, then that's problematic. And I always remember being like, oh, I'm going to take time off. I'm going to have a vacation. And then immediately it's met with like, I'll approve this. However, I just hope you know that you're leaving us short staffed for the week. And how are we going to make it through? And you're like, what kind of fucked up situation is this? Like, this doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, it's. But it's so like it it can be so easy to fall into that. And I think part of what I want to do on this show and talking with other people and also like with the the Instagram page that I have now, the anti-work therapist is like talking about how that's it's not the worker's responsibility it's not your responsibility to from from your level up try to support the entire sinking ship it's just not feasible for you the clinician who you're there to do clinical work you're not there to make sure that the administrative side of things is running smoothly it's it's not on you if they need to find staff i mean i and i i say this too like supervisors are also people admin are also people but like we all come to these places to do a specific job clinicians your job is not to fill the gaps when you take very necessary pto yeah spot on and i wonder why there's so much dysfunction in those situations because it's not like it's state specific or i think Mm -hmm. sometimes you convince yourself if i leave one agency and go to another it'll be different and it's like Mm -hmm. Maybe at first it feels like almost like a facade, but behind that curtain, it's like, nope, it's the same dysfunctional shit. And when I used to hire, I used to see resumes with, you know, someone who would job hop like every year would be in this agency and this agency. And maybe in a lot of places in employment, I would like, that would be a deterrent. But in community mental health, I was like, yeah, of course you were, you know, here for a year, here for a year. It makes sense. Like, I'm not going to knock you for that or hold that against you. I just kind of expect it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been so interesting to me. And I'd be curious to hear your perspective too, as you've moved into, you know, being a private practice owner, um, as I've set up my business and my policies and the way that I work and the fees that I have and my schedule and all this stuff, I've had to work really hard almost against myself at points to not bring those types of mindsets into my business because they're so deeply ingrained in how I've been trained, not even just in the mental health field, like with my career previous to this, that was there too. It's been a lot of working against myself in that realm. I'm curious to hear from your perspective, what it's been like. Yeah. I think that we so often recreate our agency job environments when we try to go out on our own because it's so deeply ingrained, like you said, that we have to grind and hustle culture is real. Mm -hmm. And we have to go into the mentality of like, hey, we're in capitalism mode and we're working, working, working. It's almost like this guilty feeling if you're like, I'm only going to work 15 to 18 hours a week this week or month. And you're like, but I could work 40. I could work 50. I could make more money. And I'm being lazy if I don't. I'm not being productive, but I think it's always important to like circle back to why did you do this in the first place? Why did you leave your agency job or why did you start your practice or whatever the case may be? And usually the answers are the same autonomy, freedom, creativity, you know, flexibility, 
shorter work weeks, um, all the things. I want to read more. I want to go to coffee shops. I want to go hiking. Mm -hmm. And we so actively work against that to like almost shame ourselves into thinking that we have to do more. We have to do more. We have to do more. And it's really hard. I mean, it's so deeply embedded in who we are culturally. So I think it's really important to kind of check in with yourself throughout the process and just ask the why questions. Like, why am I doing this? Why did I become a practice owner or an entrepreneur? The answers are usually pretty consistent across the board. So trying really hard to work within your value system and really tapping into like, hey, this is why I'm doing this, right? Like when I first left, I really struggled with that because I was so used to being in crisis mode and 60 hour work weeks and I would look at my calendar and say like, I'm only seeing 20 clients a week this, this week. Like I clearly can do more, like I'm being lazy or I'm not doing enough mm -hmm. and had to do a lot of unlearning to get comfortable with just saying like, oh, I have so much free time and I really look forward to that. And it makes me a better clinician because I'm able to actually take care of myself and do the things that I always wanted to do when I was punching a clock or I couldn't leave, you know, my office for days at a time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I found that same, <clears throat> that same feeling uh, of looking at a schedule and seeing open time and thinking to myself like, Oh, that that's a, that's a spot I can schedule right there. Uh, it doesn't matter that it's over the lunch hour. Nope. That I can fit somebody in there. And I think for me, that's been one of the biggest you know, areas of growth for me, I suppose you could say is looking at an open time slot and allowing it to be open and say, this is when I was in a different state of mind, maybe not actively talking to a client on the phone or emailing with them. I made the decision that I needed a two hour lunch and I'm going to do that for myself. Um, another thing that I didn't quite expect, but I'm still kind of actively contending with is scheduling my sessions back to back. I realize I don't need to do that. And I still have many slots where that is the case and I'm trying to spread it out now. But when I set things up, it's like this time and this time and this time, and then we'll have a 45 minute lunch and then more, more, more. It's like, wait, literally don't need to do that. I can actually give myself, I don't know, 15 minutes between sessions. <laughs> and you're not alone in that. You know, so many people do that. And I did that when I first started out too. And you're like, okay, I can see six to eight people a day and I'll take this 45 minute lunch and oops, I ran over. So now I have a 30 minute lunch. I'll eat as fast as I can. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I forget like, oh, you have to go to the bathroom and pee like before a session. Yeah. Or you're like sitting there crossing your legs the whole time, like looking at the clock. And, you know, I think so often that we get caught up in that, you know, like see the empty slot in the schedule, have to fill it. Um, see the empty slot in the schedule. Oh, you're being lazy. You're not being productive. You have to do something in that time frame. Mm -hmm. And I don't really see clients anymore. I've basically transitioned out of being a clinician. I have about three left on my caseload, but mm -hmm. I did that all the time where I would say like, oh, okay, 11, 12, one, then three, four, five, right? Back to back to back. You're not giving yourself any leeway to like ground, to reset, yeah. between sessions to process, to get a drink, to make a phone call. It's just like, we make our own schedules. And then I look at it on a Monday and I'm like, what the fuck did I do to myself? Like <laughs> I need to fire my boss, right? Like, <laughs> like I am the boss. So, yep. you yep. know, and I think people get so scared when they're starting their businesses. If like, 
I create a schedule that really works for me, then nobody's going to call me. I'm not going to get any clients. And that could be a really privileged thing to say too, of like, make the schedule that works for you and not the other way around. But ultimately, like, if you want to work five hours a day, do it, but be really intentional about it. Like, and be really intentional about how you structure and stagger. Because I know so many people that will like start at 9 a.m. and go till 7 or 8 p.m. And you can get caught up in chasing the money too, because you're going to make significantly more money in private practice than in a community mental health job. So it's really easy to say, well, if I just work 40 hours a week, I'm going to make all this money and I'm going to be doing my job. And it's like, you don't do this for that reason. Mm -hmm. And we don't have the capacity as sole providers and practitioners to do that because we're the only person in the room. We're the only person in the business and we're absorbing energy all the time and your mind can only hold so much space for so many clients so just really trying hard to combat that notion that you have to fill every waking hour of your day right yeah yeah and when you say 40 hours like goodness gracious i hope nobody is seeing 40 clients a week i know some people do though and and i I mean, there's always the caveat of like, if that works for you, great. But I'm thinking to myself, "Mm, no, (laughs) (laughs) but even if you were quote unquote only seeing 30 clients a week and you had the 10 extra hours, like that's not enough time to do the admin, the phone calls, the emails, the marketing, the billing, everything like, and you're right. Even if you work 40 hours a week, you're making all this money what are you going to do with it? Because you're going to be too fucking exhausted or working more than you actually think you are not able to enjoy what you're bringing in. I like, I found myself in that position. Like I am making more money. Absolutely. than I was at the group practice or at the nonprofit jobs, but I'm so exhausted. I have been so exhausted on my days off. And I actually think uh, when we did our pre-interview call, we were both talking about like, oh, well, we have the podcast and we have the, uh, the social media and the practice and the coaching and all this, all this other shit. Like we're, I'm going to say, I'm going to speak in generalisms here, but therapists are really fucking good at overextending themselves in many different directions. It's just like, folks, let's just let's chill for a second here. (laughs) (laughs) It's so deeply ingrained in us, in our culture, in our profession though, to be like, you know, giving ourselves away and feeling like I have to be attending to everybody else's needs. And I've done a lot of my own work to work up through a lot of that shit. And I don't do that anymore because I have so many hats now, you know, group practice owner, I am a podcast host, I'm a coach, I'm a therapist. I'm like, I can't switch hats every day, all day. It's Mm -hmm. just not useful for the way my brain works. So I've gotten really good at saying like, I only record podcasts on Fridays. I only do coaching on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Monday's more of an admin day. And Thursday, I'll see the one or two therapy clients that I have left. But allowing myself to have free space in my schedule is so important. Because otherwise I look at it and it looks like a game of Tetris. And if someone's like, oh, did you want to meet and get coffee? Or did you want to do this thing that we talked about doing? I'm looking at it and I'm like, unless I sacrifice like my own well-being and and happiness so that I can fit it in, I don't have the time. 
And I don't want to feel that way when I look at my schedule. Like Mm -hmm. I want to have the time because I think time is the most valuable asset and resource that we have. We're not getting it back. And at the end of the day, what are we doing this for? If we don't have the time to kind of do the things that we really enjoy doing and that we're passionate about. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And you, you bring up like the way that your week and your schedule needs to function given the way that your brain works. And, you know, if I can bring it up, I know that recently you've been pretty publicly speaking about a recent diagnosis that you received um, being on the autism spectrum. And I was just curious as a clinician and somebody working in this space, how has that informed you and the way that you work and the way that you need to work in this world? Yeah, it's a good question, you know, and I just want to plug autism acceptance right now instead of Mm -hmm. autism awareness. And, um, you know, I think that diagnosis is useful in some ways. It can be shame inducing, right. And pathologizing. And Mm -hmm. it's a, it's an, it's a mixed bag for sure. And realizing that I am autistic and also ADHD, have to really pay attention to how my brain works and how energy is either put out to the world or absorbed. And just knowing that I absorb energy so much more intensely than, than people who are neurotypical and the realization of like, it's really easy to deplete yourself. And I've always had like massive work output ability and people from the outside looking in are always like, look at how much you are accomplishing and creating. And I'm like, yeah, there's a fucking cost to this. Like, this is not glamorous. Mm -hmm. Um, But really what I've been trying harder to do, just understanding my own neurodivergence is like, okay, I have to ride the wave sometimes. Like the neurodivergent brain, sure, very creative, outside the box thinking, lots of cool ideas, can get really energized by new stimulation and excitement but I have to check myself because otherwise I will just run myself into the ground. And I think there's a misconception a lot of the time where it's like, Oh, you're in workaholism mode or like achievement mode. And you're just working towards the next thing. And it's like, no, the work actually feels quite good when it feels creative. However, hyper-focusing is a part of it. And there will be days where I'm like, oh, I just created a course in three days, but I also haven't slept or I also haven't really eaten that much. And yeah. it's really about finding that balance or at least trying to check yourself as you realize your brain is starting to like ramp up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the more we talk about this stuff, the more normalizing it can become for people who are struggling or experiencing something similar. So that's kind of the goal right now. And um energy of protection. That's, that's really what I keep going back to is just like protect your energy with who you spend your time with, how you spend it, especially when you only have so much to give because otherwise you end up vacant and depleted and feeling frustrated or, or just overwhelmed. And that's not useful for anybody, including myself. So it's really been an interesting journey. Um, one that I, I assume I'll just continue to learn more and more about myself too. I don't think it was shocking when I got that diagnosis, but I still think I'm still trying to figure out like the ins and outs, so to speak. Like I get how I move through the world, but I'm trying to better understand the brain science behind it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to me too, it's interesting, the intersection between the lived experiences of neurodivergent folks, especially clinicians, right? Working in this, this field where, we are 
uh, socially rewarded for overworking ourselves. It is something that is glorified. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's not surprising then to hear that people would say, holy shit, look at Patrick. He's, he's doing so much. He's got all this going on. It's great. He's always going. And on the inside, you're like, fuck man, like this, there's just too much. Um, yeah, just, just that intersection between how there can be really wonderful aspects of that creativity and, um, hyper-focusing on the things that you're really passionate about and that it comes with a cost at times and that it's not always seen to the people around us. Yeah, that's well said. It's not always seen. It's very often seen. And it's kind of one of those things that can feel shaming too. You get a lot of, I have a lot of people in my circles from time to time, some of whom listen to this podcast. Sorry, I'm not targeting you. Um, <laughs> who will text me and like, you need to stop. Like you need to step away. I can see that you're like doing too much. And I'm like, I get that. But I think at the same time, for people who maybe feel disconnected from the world that they live in, especially interpersonally and with people in general, work can be a form of connection. So I know when I'm feeling really inspired and really creative, mm -hmm. I feel more connected to the world around me. And because so much of my business revolves around my social media presence and people that are in my circles, that's when I truly feel like, okay, I'm, I'm actually living in connection with other human beings because the alternative when your brain is just feeling understimulated, you're feeling more depressed, you're feeling more anxious, you're feeling a little bit more disconnected. And I think the automatic response from clinicians would be like, well, practice mindfulness and like do some grounding and like check in with yourself. And it's like, yeah, it's not the same fucking thing. Right. And it's just, uh, it's a double-edged sword for sure. And it's, it, there's, there's definitely a cost and there's definitely a lot of beauty and a lot of magic that happens too. But the flip side is just like the depletion of just running on fumes. And mm -hmm. that is when I go into like, I'm going to lay in bed and watch game of Thrones for a week at a time and not like talk to anybody else in my life and disappear. So yeah, it's kind of the, uh, the other side of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, as I've gotten to know my own energy around work and I know that there's a lot of conversation around neurodivergence now, which is fantastic. I think the acceptance of that will do a lot to further our field. I have, I've seen people talking about things that I are reflected back in me and I'm like, oh, okay. That's part of that too. Okay. So this hyper-focus, this leaning into work as a way of connection, this hyper creativity, super, super excited about what you're doing. And then maybe a couple of weeks later, you feel bottom of the barrel. Like I cannot, <laughs> I can't do this anymore. Um, it's just being able to see and accept the ways that we all work and know that it's going to be different. Some people have a very steady energy. I know some of those people in my life and I'm like, how in the ever loving fuck do you keep up this energy? <laughs> like I'm up here sometimes. And then I go way the hell down here, which like, I, I'm sure as you know, being a business owner isn't even, it's a whole different playing field rather than just being somebody else's employee. It's like, Oh, this literally is depending on me to show up. Uh, so we gotta, we gotta think about how we're going to do this in a more sustainable way. Um, all of that leaning into this idea of burnout and like 
how easy it can be for folks to just lose themselves and then feel like something is wrong with them because they're not producing because that energy is gone. At least for me, it, it would usually create this cascade of like guilt and why can't I keep up with this? I started this thing and now shit, like I'm not showing up the way I said I would. People are going to notice. They're going to think I'm a bad clinician or a bad social media for whatever the fuck it might be. It's just, it's, it's too much. It's too much. Um, it is. Yeah. It can feel unrelenting, you know, mm -hmm. and that's how I know that I'm not an Enneagram three that a lot of people would assume because of <laughs> achievement and output. It's like, no, I'm a seven. I have that wanderlust personality. Mm -hmm. If I could not work ever again in my life, I would be so fucking satisfied yes. because it can be torturous to like have to show up all the time or have to be visible or have to put content out or have, you know, a presence. It's like, this is a, it can feel grinding. And I do think that for people who are neurodivergent working in a 40 hour workplace, mm -hmm. working in the confines of having to be inside of a box and not having things necessarily make sense for you, that can create even more burnout because it's really not the way our brains are wired and having to absorb all this energy of like, this is how I'm supposed to interact and show up and be a part of. And then at the end of the day, like, how come I can get so much done in three days instead of five, but I have to be here for five. That's how I know I'm no longer employable though, because I yes. could never go back to that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The whole, I'm going to sit here. And that was kind of my experience prior to getting into mental health was I've done all my work for the week. It's Tuesday afternoon. Fantastic. I guess I'll, I'll wait for <laughs> someone to send me something. Um, yeah, it's, it's been cool in some ways to see the shift. I, I feel like it's still a bit slow, um, but there's a, there's a shift happening in the field, which I'm really happy about. And I'm seeing more folks like yourself, coaches, uh, people in social media and other spaces, really honestly talking about what, what it can look like to make this field what we want it to be and really bring it back to what we want it to be rather than this commodified, commercialized, uh, insurance driven beast that it has become. Um, and I, I think I'm curious to hear a little bit more about now the work that you're doing as a coach with people. What, what does that look like for you as you are coaching people through this process? So I've always like, when I was, you know, I live in Asheville, which is like therapist Mecca. And mm -hmm. there are so many private practice clinicians here in Asheville. And um, I was always meeting with them at first when I started my business and helping them build their businesses for free, for coffee, for lunch. And people would say, you should do this for a living. You're really good at this. And it just comes really naturally. And I think we have this almost like inclination interpersonally when things come naturally to assume they come naturally for everybody. Mm -hmm. At least that's always how I've thought about it. And I started private practice coaching and consulting in 2020 when COVID first uh, hit, probably just from being cooped up in my house and having so much damn energy all the time. Mm -hmm. And at first it was like logistic based, right? Like I'm going to teach you how to build a private practice. And very quickly I realized my coaching style is much more mindset based. So we're working through fears, failures, insecurities, imposter syndrome all the time because 
that's a big part of being an entrepreneur is self-doubt, 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 overanalyze, perfectionism, like can't get out of our own fucking ways because someone else does it better. I don't have as much experience or training or licensure or whatever. Mm. And then also helping therapists step into and embrace their authenticity. So I am a firm believer that as human beings, therapists get put on this pedestal of like, we have to act a certain way. We have to operate a certain way. We have to show up to the world a certain way. And I think that's bullshit. I mean, I'm not going into sessions disclosing my whole life story by any means, but at the same time, I'm willing to talk about being autistic. I'm willing to talk about my gambling addiction days. Like I think relatability is what builds trust and rapport and connection. Mm -hmm. And so often we lose sight of the fact that we can be human beings and still be helpful. And that's a big part of my coaching is really stepping into and embracing like, Hey, this is how I talk. This is how I write. This is how I show up. Like that is so crucial. And when I am working with therapists who start to embrace their personalities and let that show, they start to attract the clients who they really want to work with and vice versa. Because at the end of the day, why would someone call me if I don't know who I work with? Or why would someone call me if I sound like a fucking robot in everything that I write and create? And (laughs) I just started a TikTok just to make fun of people's psychology today pages because of how bad they are. (laughs) So I'm really, really excited for the fallout from that when people start telling me how uh, awful I am. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, I think obviously 99% of us don't have business training or experience. And obviously like, there is fear around doing something new, doing something different, doing something scary. But I've started to really embrace the mentality of like use fear as a gas pedal, not a break and Mm -hmm. doubt yourself and do it anyway. That's kind of the motto. And ultimately realizing that the fear exists, it should exist because we're doing something different. We're taking a risk. And that part of our brain is saying, whoa, you're being risky. You're, you're taking too much on like shrink back inside of yourself, step back. That's when you Mm -hmm. convince yourself to give a 90 day notice at your job instead of a 30 day (laughs) or to stay an extra year that you shouldn't or whatever. And the, and convince yourself, like, I can't do this on my own. I need, I, I need the security. Mm -hmm. And for some people you absolutely do. However, I don't know a single solopreneur entrepreneur, private practice clinician who is regretting that they put their notice in and went out on their own. I think most of the time it's like, I wish I had done this sooner. So What I do is a lot of that. It's just helping people work through that process, especially the emotional side of being an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what my podcast has turned into too. It started out as like, I'm going to teach people how to build their practices on a podcast. And I was like, no, that is very fucking boring and nobody wants to hear (laughs) that. And those already exist. So it's really turned into like the emotional side of entrepreneurship and like normalizing fear, failure, struggle, and insecurity because that shit exists and that is real. And we can get caught up in the comparison mindset too of like, oh, Meg is doing so much. How come I'm not doing enough? Like, oh, this person has so much following. How come I don't? I must not be good enough. And in reality, it's Mm -hmm. like, no, everyone shows up the way they want to show up and everyone's situation is different. So that's kind of what it's turned into. Yeah, I like that. And it's kind of funny that you mentioned that uh, because literally this morning prior to jumping on this call, I, I've been stepping back a bit from my social media because I've noticed myself getting into hustle mindset with it. Like I'm not doing enough. I'm not showing up. I'm not posting valuable fucking content all the time. (laughs) 
And so I, I posted something calling myself out, but calling other people out too, like, Hey, you're showing up in this space, hustling and grinding. And it doesn't like, you don't have to do that. It's okay to not do it all, all the time. You're not doing enough. And that is okay. Like it doesn't, doesn't have to be this thing where you're constantly always going, going, going and comparing yourself and feeling like everything is going to fall apart. If you don't post that infographic about self-care techniques today, like (laughs) I, I just, I have to say, I love therapists. I hate some of the content that we come out with because it's so boring. Um, <laughs> but it, it kind of goes back to your like your comment about like show up as your fucking self as as much as you feel comfortable with. You can actually be a human and talk a bit about you and show people that you're not a robot. You don't speak in clinical jargon when you meet with them. Like I see, I see so many so many wonderful clinicians where I'm like, I connect on zero levels with you because I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. And I'm a therapist, please. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a, I, I, I love that topic. Um, it's a, it's a lot. <laughs> when you come on my uh, podcast, we can talk about this. Cause it's, it's yes. definitely one of my passions is like, mm-hmm. I could go on this long rabbit hole right now about like, mm-hmm how terrible most clinicians are at marketing themselves and like showing up authentically (laughs) and like posting pictures of fucking stacked rocks on everything you do. And like one instinct, one Instagraphic, like with a quote that you didn't create or like some techniques that you didn't create and just posting it, that's not driving engagement. And that's also not highlighting who you are as a human being show who you are as a human being, like just, share your story, share some like advice, share some feedback, share some of your struggle. Like mm-hmm. that's what makes people connect to you. Not you resharing or tweeting someone else's stuff that they've created. <sighs> yeah, yeah. I could go down that rabbit hole for a <laughs> long time. I did a lot of psychology today audits yesterday in my TikTok <laughs> world. And some of these are just so comically bad. And it's like, you have to remember that 99% of the population doesn't fucking talk like us. So like when you're talking in clinical jargon and using acronyms and I did training here and I use this modality, it's like, who are you talking to and who are you trying to prove competency to? Because at the end of the day, your clients don't give a shit about that. Yeah. I, I can't remember for myself ever going to a therapist profile, even as a therapist now, like sometimes I'll check a little bit out of what they've done, but most, most of the time it's like, can you fucking help me, please? I am desperate. <laughs> um, and and it's, you know, we can laugh at it. And this is also like, we'll have fun talking about this because this is definitely a rabbit hole for, for me as well. But it's <laughs> it, it goes a little bit deeper for me and it speaks to this idea, this longstanding blank slate bullshit that has separated us from the client in ways that at least this, this my perspective, it's unnecessary in a lot of ways. Of course, there are clinical boundaries. I know that we all know that for fuck's sake, like we get it. But when we create such a separation, it takes the humanity out of the work. <clears throat> when I have been most separate and most clinical with my clients, I have done my, my worst work with them. That's not to say that it's been bad, that I have not been able to help, but there's not like when I'm not connecting with myself, I'm not connecting with you or the client. I'm not showing up in a way that is authentic in a way that can actually represent real relationships that these people might have out in the world, which is 
a big part of what we do, right? Like we try to recreate in a way that is clinically helpful in healing situations and relationships that these folks are going to encounter. And if we're clinical and sterile, I don't know. This, it's a whole fucking thing. I love it and I hate it and I love it. But <laughs> I mean, you're, you're spot on. <laughs> and, you know, the almost like the image of sitting across from each other on the couch, right? Like how much distance is there? And if you're intentionally placing like a coffee table in between the two of you, maybe you're doing that for a reason. And even on the Zoom screen, but if you're not allowing yourself to show up as an actual human being, Mm-hmm. How are you building connection and rapport, which is so much of what we do. Mm-hmm. And I think we lose sight of that, of like, oh, I have to use these evidence-based practices and I have to do A, B, and C in session. Otherwise, it's not a success. And anytime I got into that mindset, that's when imposter syndrome really shows up when you're like, I'm not a good clinician. But yeah. in reality, it's like, no, the fit is just not there. And if the connection isn't there, there's a lot of reasons for that, but a lot of the time it's just because you're holding yourself back from, I, I know people who are like, do you ever cry in session with your client? Do you ever laugh in session at their jokes? Like, yeah, I do that all the fucking time. Hell yeah. what are, I, <laughs> when I see that, I'm like, who are these monsters out there that are like doing these things? I just like staring have, blankly at a client when they're telling a joke. Like, oh my God. Right. No. <laughs> I mean, I get it. Like I have flat affect a lot of the time, but like, I'm going to show emotion when I can. And yeah. I had one of my group practice clinicians and she's a f- good friend of mine on my podcast. And we were talking about this. Like, she's like, when I see clients in public, if they want to say hi to me, I want to have a conversation with them. If I see my doctor in the grocery store, I'm going to say hi to them. What's the difference here? And I was like, huh, that's such a good point. Cause we're so we're trained to be like so distant and disconnected as if like we can't show up and appreciate the fact that we have an actual relationship together and that we care about these people. Mm-hmm. So I just think it's interesting. And I'm glad that we're seeing like a massive shift in the air in this era of psychotherapy. Yeah. We have a lot of, you know, people leading the charge to say, it's okay to embrace who you are. It's okay to share your story. It's okay to be a human being robotic blank slates don't work. And like, I just think it's really, really important for where we're headed in terms of mental health care. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's overall, I think me being able to just like, I I know folks listening can't see, but there have been times when I've shown up to sessions wearing what I am wearing right now. It's a a sport tank top. (laughs) I've got my tattoos out. Like I jumped out of the shower an hour ago. It's fine. Um, It's fine. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not going to show up disheveled. I'm not going to show up obviously hungover because I don't drink anyway, so whatever. But I'll, I'll show up in the way that's appropriate, but I'm not going to show up in a way that makes me feel uncomfortable because you're going to feel uncomfortable. That it's Yeah. Anyways, love it. <laughs> and I'm thinking about this one thing real quick. Like I saw, yeah. I'm a group practice owner and, uh-huh. you know, I, I, I encourage my clinicians like show off your tattoo, show off mm-hmm. your blue hair, like whatever. I don't care. That's that's real that's real stuff. Like, I don't want clients to get to the office and be like, Whoa, your picture has blonde hair, but you actually have blue hair. I don't want to work with you. (laughs) But I saw this post in one of these Facebook groups where it was like, do you let your group practice clinicians wear shorts in session? Because I think that is an abomination. And I was like, who the fuck cares if people are wearing (laughs) shorts? What are you talking about? I care more about if they're showing up and supporting the client. I don't give a fuck about what they're wearing as long as it's like, oh, I'm not wearing a Budweiser shirt to session. But like, you know, uh, it's just, 
yeah. yeah it's it's ridiculous and it, it all of these things lead into um like the big and small ways that the field is gate kept and the field is managed through like spoken and unspoken rules of perfection or whatever the hell professionalism is supposed to mean and it's it's hard for me to see those things as being divorced from burnout and from imposter syndrome and from feeling fed up ultimately which is where a lot of clinicians get with the field and it's not to say that like oh, I can't show up with my blue hair. So I fucking hate being a therapist, but <laughs> it doesn't help when you, when you don't feel like you can show up and just be there and in the same way that shitty policies make it really hard to be a therapist and shitty pay makes it really hard to be a therapist and feeling like you can't, if it's, if you're in North Carolina and it's hot as fuck in the summer and you can't show up in shorts, please. <laughs> I had to do a double take at that. I was like, what kind yes. of policy is this? Like, how am I supposed to be dressing? Because all I ever want to do is wear shorts. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But you're right. I mean, it, those things are all tied into burnout and they are all tied into imposter syndrome and this perfectionistic mindset of how we are supposed to move in the world. And I think that when we don't feel congruent within our values and authenticity, then it we hold ourselves back, but it also creates this overwhelm and almost this existential questioning and crisis where it's like, I don't like what I'm doing anymore because I don't feel in alignment with who I am. And that does not lead to becoming good, consistent, helpful therapists or whatever profession. If you don't feel like you can act in alignment with your values and show Mm -hmm. up authentically. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. I know I've been on many, many walks with my husband where Thank goodness he's got a good listening ear because there were times where I was absolutely talking into outer space with all of my complaints about things. But um, yeah, that that existential dread um, when you realize that you've spent, I don't know, you had to go to undergrad, you had to get your master's degree, you had to do the licensure hours, you did all this shit, and then you arrive and you're like, this doesn't feel good. I'm not actually happy here. and, and sitting with that, I have found for myself, um, it's actually, for me, it's propelled a lot of really positive change because I had to get real with what my situation was, where I was working, how I was unhappy. And again, like contending with the guilt of leaving and the guilt of, you know, this last group practice that I left, I think I had overall in my caseload, maybe 40 or 50 people. So 40 or 50 breakups, essentially, being like, Hey, you've got Google. It's cool. But like, otherwise I'm gone. (laughs) Let's talk about this. I'll give you a month. Great. But all of that reckoning leading you to this point where you have to just, you have to be real with yourself about what needs to change if you're going to be in this field and have it be sustainable, or if you need to leave and it's okay to leave, at least in my opinion. It's definitely okay to leave. And I think that's, that's the last thing we want in this field, right, is to have that mm-hmm. resentment bubble up and, and that frustration because then it gets taken out on the wrong people. Mm-hmm. And the client shouldn't bear the brunt of that if you don't want to be in the profession. Mm-hmm. I know there's a lot of shamefulness that can come up with, quote unquote, abandoning the profession. Um, 
I experienced a lot of that moving more into a, a coaching consultant and like saying, am I abandoning this profession that I worked so hard to get into? And my um, mentor from grad school was kind of like, no, I think you're just helping the profession in a different way. And that helped me really reframe that and just like mm -hmm. give myself a little more compassion around it. But if you get to that point where you have that breaking point or you're just like, this doesn't feel satisfying anymore. I think it is important to take a step back and check in about why. And our skills are so transferable and applicable in so many arenas. So there's a lot of self-limiting belief too out there. That's like, if I'm a clinician, I'm only a clinician. And it's like, yeah, kind of, but not really like your skills are really useful in so many different ways. So it's just about acknowledging that and really understanding how they can be uh, implemented elsewhere too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, I actually had an episode of this podcast drop today, Monday, April 4th, uh, with a guest, Megan Malik. And on the, on the topic of abandonment, something that she said that really stuck out to me, that was really helpful to hear was if she was, she was living an agency and she was feeling bad because she felt like she was abandoning clients and she had done what she could to try to avoid that, you know, obviously, and was talking with her supervisor about it. And her supervisor said, you know, what if you're... You're, you're not the one abandoning them. Um, had you considered maybe that this agency abandoned them long before you ever stepped foot in the door? Um, it was already happening. They already had everything set up to have these clients be abandoned. And since she told me that, I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it sucks. But we, we can't save other people from abandonment by abandoning ourselves and our health and our mental well-being and the happiness that we have in this world. Um, I know that a lot of us try so hard to convince ourselves otherwise. It doesn't work. <laughs> Trust me. Yeah. That's really well said. And I like that perspective a lot. You know, the systems that are in place and the, the dysfunctional leadership and administration and policies, like they don't set you up to have longevity. So it's not you, it's them. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it really is. And my biggest piece of advice would just be to find your landing spot, whether it be a solo practice, a group practice that you feel supported at. And, mm -hmm. you know, some people have the luxury of finding a really good job in the community mental health world. They're few and far between, but they do exist, I imagine. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But Support, mentorship, and guidance, really important in this profession to out, outrun burnout, so to speak, because we all need to feel supported. We all need mentorship. We all need guidance. We all need to continue to be able to process what happens and how we experience this, this profession. Mm -hmm. Our stuff is heavy. And if you don't have a container for it, then it becomes almost unbearable. So I do think that is another side of practice ownership people don't see mm -hmm. where it's like, I just work for myself and I see my clients. And at the end of the day, I haven't talked to anybody and I can't talk to my partner about what I talked about at work today. So like yep. here I am all by myself. So yeah. peer consultation, good supervision, good coaching, good mentorship. So, so crucial in mm -hmm. persevering and preserving your career and your, your, your joy and your fulfillment too. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad that we can kind of come to the top of this episode by talking about that. Cause I, 
sometimes I feel bad on this show because I'm like, wow, I'm like talking a ton of shit, but it's important. (laughs) Um, And it is also important to be able to highlight the fact that there is optimism, there's hope in this, and that there are those containers and those arenas where you can get support and talk to people and actually make this career really fantastic um, and have it be the thing that you hoped it would be when you first set foot into grad school, maybe even prior to that. Um, I'm curious for you, of all of those things, what do you think has been the most, if not one of the most helpful things in moving you out of burnout and into a place where you feel more aligned with your work? Such a good question. Um, I think it was just risk-taking and like stepping into who I really wanted to be. And, but always questioning that too. You know, I have a, a lot of humility even in success and I doubt myself all the fucking time, but surrounding yourself with people who build you up instead of tear you down. I mean, and that goes from your supervision, that goes from your peer group, that goes from your mentorship, any coaching that you receive, like having those people in your corner kind of motivating you and empowering you and inspiring you. I think it's been really crucial and I don't think I could have achieved what I've achieved or created what I've created. If I would have just said my journey stops here and this is all that there is. Mm -hmm. I do know that when I left community mental health, all I wanted was private practice ownership. I didn't see any other path, right? Because sometimes we just can't see the forest for the trees and if we don't have the capacity or the energy or the space, it's really hard to see anything else anyway. And for a lot of you listening, your private practice journey is going to be the end point and that is okay. And for some of you, it's not, it's going to be one exit off the highway, so to speak. And then you're going to get back on and, you know, figure it out and recalibrate and evolve over time. And I don't think we grow in places of stagnation. So pushing yourself out of your comfort zone is really important. And whether that even means just considering taking a step towards private practice or joining a group or doing something different, it doesn't even have to be an action step, but just starting to plant the seed of like, this career doesn't have to be black and white. And there are so many ways that you can go through this journey and it's going to look very different than everybody else's. And I really do think that's been the most pivotal piece for me. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I can agree with that. Um, When I started to realize that part of this work for me didn't, didn't require all of the one-to-one with clients, but it could involve something like this show. Um, And some of the ways that I'm showing up online, the advocacy piece of things for me has actually been really invigorating. Um, And it's a space where I can like get fired up and say some stupid shit and people are like, hell yeah. Like, okay, cool. Um, yeah, there, there are so many different ways to make this field and this line of work and all of the different parts of it work for you so that you can also like at the end of the day, close the laptop or close the office door and like go home and enjoy yourself because that is a big part of this too. So yeah. Um, well, this has been awesome. Uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um Usually at the end of the show, I just like to ask the big open-ended question of all my guests. Um, If you were to 
leave the audience with just one thing to think about or something to chew on as they're closing down their podcast app, what would it be? <laughs> Talk about I existential know. crisis right, right? now. Um, <laughs> this is your chance. <laughs> I've, I'm a really firm believer in self-doubt and using it as motivation and knowing that that means you're on the right track so that every time you see it come up, every time you see that imposter syndrome rear its head, every time you feel feel fearful or anxious about your next decision, you're really moving in the right direction. And I'm a firm believer of building the plane as you fly it and working through perfectionism, knowing that it can never be perfect. So whatever you're looking to do, whether it's you're starting out on your master's program journey, your private practice journey, you want to create the course, the podcast, you know, and that thought comes up of, I'm not good enough. I'm not competent enough. Someone else already does it. Just push that shit to the side. Thank you for being there and trying to protect you. But just knowing that your voice is unique. Everything I have right now, I owe to believing that my voice is unique and that I show up authentically and that everyone is different and who they attract and repel. And I think that that's a really important takeaway. And I still struggle with the insecurity piece in the coaching world. And I think it's a constant evolution of who we are as human beings to just be able to say that I get to try and I may fail, but we learn from failure and mistake and we grow from it. And again, just doubt yourself and do it anyway. Awesome. Yeah, I like that. Doubt yourself and do it anyway. Okay, well... Thank you again so much for coming on the show and talking. I think this was a fun, it was a fun conversation for me. I appreciated it very much. Um, I appreciate it too. You're the first person I talked to today. So at least I got to laugh already. Yes. All right. Mission accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thanks again. And yeah, take care until, I guess, until I come on your show. <laughs> for sure. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. Thanks, Meg. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And I hope that whoever or wherever you are, you can start having more conversations in your circles of support about better ways to support ourselves and to support each other through burnout. If you like today's show, please make sure to head over to wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, I would love it if you left a rating and a review on there to help get the word out. Thanks so much, y'all. Until next time, take care of yourselves, and I will see you again soon.